0: afternoon and thank you for coming. Lynn Garofola is a professor of dance at Barnard College, a dance historian and critic. She is the author of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and Legacies of 20th Century Dance, and the editor of several books, including the Diaries of Marius Petipa, which she also translated, Of, By, and For the People, Dancing on the Left in the 1930s, José Limón, An Unfinished Memoir, and The Ballet Russe and Its World. I have two of her books up here for your reading pleasure afterwards. Um, So, she is also a curator of the New York Historical Society's exhibition, Dance for a City, 50 Years of the New York City Ballet, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, 500 Years of Italian Dance, treasures from the Chia Fornarelli Collection, and several smaller shows. She is a former Getty Scholar, recipient of fellowships from the Social Science Research Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities, and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Editor of the acclaimed book series, Studies in Dance History, She has written for Dance Magazine, The Nation, The Times Literary Supplement, and many other publications. This past spring, she curated the exhibition, New York Story, Jerome Robbins and His World at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Her next exhibition project, Diaghilev's Theater of Marvels, The Ballet Russe and its Aftermath, opens at the library in late June 2009. I'm very pleased to, pre- to present Lynn Garifola.
1: Thank you. Uh, first order of business, can you all hear me? I heard a no. Where is the no? Oh, okay. I will try to speak... I will try to make sure to speak loud enough. Um, first of all, I'm honored to be here and really thrilled um, to see so many young faces. I mean, not that I don't appreciate older faces, mature faces. But it is especially nice to see uh, young ones. Um, um, Also, I would very much like to thank um, Maureen Carr and her colleagues for um, making this lecture possible and for making this seminar possible, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful idea. Um, Well, there's the title of my talk, so I don't have to tell you what it is. And so I'll start. Um, The idea of choreographic process, like so many aspects of choreographic practice, was radically transformed in the early 20th century by Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. Indeed, one could argue that the Ballet Russe, through its rapid shifts in artistic profile and frequent change of creative personnel, invented the very idea of choreographic process. Choreographers long before the Ballet Russe had written treatises arguing for the worthiness of Um, Of dance or a particular set of aesthetic principles and sometimes even recording the choreography of their dances or laying out the structural principles of a particular genre of ballet. But few commented upon what happened when he, or more rarely she, entered the studio and began to quote, arrange or stage the dances. Few spoke of the choices they made and why they made them, although they made them all the time. In other words, pre-ballet russ- choreographers treated the creative process um, um, transparently. Dance-making was something they did, but saw no reason to explain. By contrast, the principal choreographers are, um, affiliated with the Diaghilev enterprise, and um, we'll look, see them. Uh, this is the first uh, Michel Fouquin in a drawing here, a portrait by um, Serov, the Russian painter. Vaslav Nijinsky, uh, seen here in a drawing by Sargent. Uh, Leonid Massine in a drawing uh, by Boxt. Bronislava Nijinska, drawn not so, um, uh, let's say, not so favorably by uh, Jean Cocteau. He didn't like her too much. And finally, George Balanchine in a photo from the late uh, 1920s. All these choreographers viewed the um, dance-making process reflexively. In, In writings and interviews, they elucidated their goals and described how they worked, emphasizing the uniqueness of their approach within a framework of rapidly changing and contending solutions. For this group of choreographers, dance was above all a creative art, one steeped in a personal vision, that broke with fossilized convention even as it selectively retained the inheritance of the past. Um, And now a picture of Diaghilev. This is a portrait by Box of Diaghilev with his nanny uh, uh, painted in St. Petersburg from 1904 to 1906. This new emphasis on subjectivity reflected Diaghilev's own belief set forth in a series of polemical essays. Um, published in Mirus Gustva, or the World of Art. Um, Here in the journal founded by him in 1898 as a platform for new trends, especially in the visual arts, he asserted that, quote, the value and significance of a work of art lay in its expression of the artist's personality, end quote. Responding to the first of a long line of critics, who attacked him for a blind fascination with what is new. He argued that far from rejecting history, he and his fellow um, Miris Kuzniki, who included the future Ballet Russe designers Alexandre Benoit and Leon Bakst, had plunged into this study of, quote, past eras applying to Shakespeare the same um, yardstick, uh, yardstick by which we had measured Wagner the day before, we rejected any suggestion that art might not be independent, and we placed man himself at the point of origin. Nature, imagination, truth, content, form, style, nat- nationalism, all had to be explained through the prism of personality." End quote. Um, The grand ballets that Diaghilev and his first generation of choreographers watched in the 1890s and 1900s unspooled over the course of an evening. With three or four acts and numerous scenes, they were grand entertainments. Um, As elaborated in Russia by Marius Petipa, uh, seen here at the end of his life, Uh, The grand ballet was an aggregate form in which music, dance, and visual spectacle met met, but did not necessarily fuse um, in the creation of a larger whole. The libretto dominated. It summed up the identity of a ballet and by invoking familiar myths or literary works rooted it in the culture of the day. By contrast, music and especially choreography were highly unstable. Scores changed, sometimes in their entirety, but more typically by adding or replacing whole chunks of music to accommodate choreographic changes. These were even more commonplace than musical changes. Choreography changed with the casting of a new dancer or the debut of a visiting star. It also changed with the revival of a work, with the, when the addition of new dances or the significant revision of existing ones um, became a means of updating a production, of making it stage-worthy for a new generation of dancers. Like his peers at opera houses throughout Europe, Petty worked within the confines of a huge and immensely bureaucratic institution. Creative work represented only one aspect of his professional activity. He performed multiple tasks, from planning and choreographing new works, to rehearsing and reviving old ones, nurturing the talents of over 200 dancers, supervising the company's affiliated school, and cultivating influential balletomaines domains and uh, bureaucrats. Although he wielded enormous power, his power was not absolute. He answered to the director of the Imperial Theaters, who could initiate projects and commission artists, even when Petipa disagreed with his decisions. Management, in other words, was hierarchical, And only the wealthy and well-born served in the highest echelons of the administration. By 1903, Diaghilev had, I'm sorry, Petipa had reached the end of his long career. His last completed work, The Magic Mirror, a retelling of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in no fewer than four acts and seven scenes, was widely perceived as a failure. Even Petipa called it a fiasco in his diary. In the Petersburg Gazette, that's a newspaper, Diaghilev was pitiless. This is Diaghilev. Blame for the ballet's future does not rest with the decorations, by which he meant the the scenery, or even with the unsuccessful heavy music. It lies in the very enterprise of producing this ballet. Unnecessary, boring, long, complicated, and pretentious. Uh, That's a review I would not want to get. Uh, And there's more, it goes on. (laughs) The ballet was rife with the conventions of a half century. Long pantomime scenes, a poisoned apple, and a lost handkerchief Dances for dryads and gnomes and everlasting flowers. A dream scene in which the heroine, escorted by zephyrs and stars, appeared to her yearning despondent prince. And a final betrothal scene that brought the ballet to a happy end. I'm sure you've seen a ballet or two with many of those elements. Here was the combination of retrospective naturalism and the stylized fanta- fantasy that had coalesced in Petitpas ballets in the late 1880s, now hopelessly superannuated and bereft of the quickening pulse of life. Here was the edifice of Petitpas grand ballet sinking under the weight of its own conventions. So now I'd like to go to our Diagula's first choreographer, Michel Fauquin. Where then? did the future lie? And how was a dancer reared under the shadow of the master to find his or, own, or her own choreographic voice? Yeah. In December um, 1904, only weeks before the bloody events that ignited the, the revolution of 1905, Isadora Duncan, is this alright? Is my sound okay? Okay. Um, Isidore Duncan paid her first visit to the Russian capital. The hall of nobles was packed with the cream of St. Petersburg art and ballet worlds, including Diaghilev and most of his early collaborators. The Imperial Ballet was represented by its leading ballerinas, as well as by the young premier danseur uh, Michel Fauquin. Duncan's concerts, an all Chopin program and another called Dance Idols, left a deep and enduring mark on Fouquin's imagination. He was crazy about her, Diaghilev wrote in the 1920s. And Duncan's influence on him was the initial basis of his entire creation. Of course, that's a double, two-edged compliment. Isadora gave the classical ballet of Imperial Russia a shock from which it never recovered. In memoirs um, embittered by Years of Exile and Creative Futility, Fokine devoted several admiring pages to, to Duncan, whom he called the greatest American gift to the art of the dance. She reminded us of the beauty of simple movements, he wrote. Uh, She proved that all the primitive, plain, natural movements, a simple step, run, turn on both feet, small jump on one foot, are far better than all the richness of ballet technique, if to this technique must be sacrificed grace, expressiveness, and beauty. Um, Although he, um, oh, I should... Although he later denied it, Fokine made his first dances in the wake of Duncan's first Petersburg concerts. He wove her signature steps into his dances and the plasticity of her arms and torso into the bodies that performed him, performed them. He took to heart her lesson that beauty and expressiveness are of the greatest importance um, and decanted them in works that drew on a host of national styles. Uh, and is Nijinsky is the golden slave in Scheherazade. Uh, man can be and must be expressive, Fokine wrote in a 1914 letter to the London Times explaining his work to British readers. The new ballet advances from the expressiveness of the face to the expressiveness of the whole body and from the expressiveness of the individual body to the expressiveness of a group of bodies and the expressiveness of the combined dancing of a crowd. By then, Fokin had enshrined this credo in an, a score of works, including Chopiniana or Les Sylphides, Firebird, and Petrushka, ballet's first modern classics. ballets not only looked different from their predecessors, they also resulted from different compositional strategies. With Fouquin, the choreographic idiom was uncoupled from the technical idiom of ballet. In other words, although Fouquin never abjured what is called the dance d'école or um, the academic dance, the dance of the school, in other words, ballet technique, formal ballet technique. As the dancer's basic training and daily practice, in other words, what they did in the studio every morning before they began rehearsing, few of his works revealed its presence directly. He used point sparingly and nearly always in ballets with romantic settings such as Les Sylphides and Le Spectre de la Rose, which I'm sure m- many of you have seen. Um, in, uh, yes, in of the many ballets with exotic or um, Hellenic or Hellenistic settings such as Scheherazade, and this is one of Bach's designs for Scheherazade, Scheherazade. Um, and uh, Narcisse, another one of Bach's designs, um, point disappeared entirely along with that other badge of ballerina identity, the tutu. As as dancers donned idealized uh, versions of ethnographic dress, along with the tunics and sandals that it invited accusations of Duncanism. Stylistically, too, his ballets differed from one another, complying with the first rule of his 1914 letter, not to form combinations of ready-made and established dance steps, but to create, in each case, a new form corresponding to the subject. These forms significantly augmented the palette of movement. They drew selectively upon modified classical and character dance steps, which Fokine combined in new ways and enriched with so-called natural movements and gestures that carried everyday meaning. He added movements that freed the torso and arms, um, dramatizing the body's plasticity, expansiveness and breath, and like Duncan, his women were uncorseted. Remember in around 1900, almost all dancers wore corsets under their costumes. Uh, he worked collaboratively with his soloists, sketching out the movement almost improvisationally, then leaving it to the dancer to fill out the details and thus imbue the role with the dancer's individual sensibility. Uh, Fouquin's treatment of music was also indebted to Duncan. Like her, he choreographed exclusively to music from the concert repertory. Moreover, he used music, as she did, to evoke atmosphere, intensify emotion, and a few, infuse the movement with subjectivity. Just as he had freed choreographic movement from the classroom, so he freed the music that accompanied his dances from the strictures of 19th century ballet music. And I use that in quotes. He unglued the step phrase from the musical phrase transforming the structure of the, du- of the solos, duets, and, uh, and ensemble dances conventionalized by Petitpas and mirrored in, in the scores of even the best specialist composers. Instead, Fauquin established a more generalized relationship between the two, based on rhythm, sound, um, mood, and, exp- uh, and expressiveness. Although fauquin 's musical tastes, like Duncan's, were fundamentally conservative, He accepted, at least in principle, music of every kind, provided only that it is good and expressive. That also comes from that Times letter. He viewed the relationship between choreographer and composer as one of complete equality and insisted, moreover, on the composer's creative freedom. The new ballet, he wrote in uh, his 1914 letter, does not impose any specific ballet conditions on the composer but gives complete free liberty to his creative powers. As the list of Diaghilev's music commis- musical commissions amply demonstrates, the shift that began with Fouquin opened ballet to an unparalleled range of musical partners. Um, indeed, ballet and later modern dance became the unsung patrons of 20th century music. Ultimately, this shifted the crux of the dance work away from the plot. As um, Alexandra Benoit, who is shown here in a painting by Boxt, explained in a report of the 1909 Ballet Rue season, to us it was the, the music which provided the ballet with its center of gravity. The moment had arrived when one listened to the music, and in listening to it, derived an additional pleasure from seeing it. I think this is the mission of ballet. Um, with Fokine emerged modernism's first music-based works grounded in the classical vocabulary, ranging from plotless compositions that revealed, quote, that ballet could be about music, to works that Fokin once described as the plastic word. They guided the spectator into the heart of his choreography. Quote, my dancers must speak their innermost thoughts through the expressiveness of their entire being, he once said. In Fokin's work, there was room both for the personal and the improvised, for sensibility and imagination. Um, Sensibility may have stamped Fokin's works with human warmth and breath, but with the partial exception of casting, they revealed little in the way of autobiography. This was not the case of Vaslav Nijinsky, his successor at the choreographic helm of the Ballet Russe. Wunderkind of the company's early seasons, uh, a virtuoso, um, an actor of genius. His three um, pre-World War I ballets, uh, Afternoon of a Faun, and here you see Nijinsky as the faun, uh, Le Sacre du Printemps in 1913, and Je also in 1913, recorded a troubled journey to adulthood and sexual knowledge with Diaghilev as his mentor and his sister, Bronislava Nijinska, as his choreographic um, muse or guinea pig, you choose. Uh, Nijinska traced this passage in a language that all but rejected the danse d'école, preferring instead to impose upon the members of his choreographic ensemble a movement idiom rooted in his own um, body. Building upon Fauquin's innovative practices, he both extended and transformed their liberatory promise. Like German free dance choreographers of the 1920s and their American um, modern dance counterparts of the 1930s, he created for each of his three works a distinctive idiom or, quote, technique, the movement foundation upon which he then built the choreography and which he insisted the dancers reproduce with the strictest fidelity. It began in 19. Um, in, yeah, yeah. It began in 1910 in the Nijinsky family living room in St. Petersburg when Vaslav announced to his the sister, who idolized him, that he was going to, amount, to mount a ballet to the music of Debussy, that it was to be set in archaic as opposed to the classical Greece favored by Fokine, and that, quote, any sweetly sentimental line in the form or the movement will be excluded. He had started planning the choreography. Now he wanted to work out the movement on his sister. Nijinska recorded her impressions of their rehearsals, and even after nearly um, a century, they convey with more than a touch of anguish the near impossible task of transposing to her own willing body the idiosyncratic movement invented by her brother. It's amazing, she wrote, how Vaslav himself, from the very beginning, without any preparation, is in complete mastery of the new technique of his ballet. Of course, it came out of his own body. Sorry. Um, In his own execution, back to Nijinska, each movement, each position of the body, and the expression of each choreographic movement is perfect. Nijinska was his model, the clay he molded, shaping each pose and change of movement. He demonstrated, and she imitated, acceding Accordi- to his demands, playing out in its early, earliest form um, the, um, the sadomasochistic relationship of many 20th century, chor- century choreographers and their interpreters. Vaslav is so demanding, she wrote. He wants to see his choreographer, uh, choreography instantaneously executed to perfection. Um, he is unable to take into account human limitations. Although she came to see the delicate refinement of his choreography, she also understood that his vision brooked no individuality on the part of his interpreter, that the slightest deviation, any small mistake, could destroy the whole composition. Afternoon of a Fonte t- took 10 minutes to perform and 90 or more, depending on whom you believe, rehearsals to stage. Nijinsky claimed that Nijinska claimed that it was mounted and rehearsed in the same way that a music score is performed by an orchestra, with Nijinsky conducting the ballet, seeing to quote each choreographic detail in the same way that the conductor of an orchestra hears each note in a musical stave in the musical score. She acknowledged his authority, um, emphasizing that his achievement. Was at least partly um, lay at least partly in his process. It was uh, the first she de- he um, he was the first she declared to demand that his whole choreographic material should be executed not only exactly as he saw it, but ac- also according to his artistic interpretation. Fokin had encouraged his dancers to project their individuality, to leave a personal imprint on the choreography. Nijinsky, by contrast reconstructed the ballet down to its smallest detail. Every position of the body was drawn, as Nijinska wrote, according to a strict choreographic plan. The dancers walked in profile, as you see here, their feet in parallel, their arms angular or rounded like industrial tubing. They walked, pivoted, linked arms, tilted heads, robots set improbably in Arcadia. The dancers hated it. They felt constricted by the choreography as if they were, quote, carved out of stone, as they told Nijinska. Or, as Lydia Sokolova put it um, in an interview, the choreography, quote, came almost on a platter. And we were then taught to do it. um, Sakura, um both complicated and magnified Nijinsky's authoritarian approach. Once again, he had worked out his earliest sketches on Nijinska, first mounting the Danse Sacral, or the sacred dance, um, where the chosen maiden, Nijinska's role, until she became pregnant, dances herself to death. Again, he established a basic posture, which you see here. In this case, the inward rotation of the legs and feet that created the, quote, primitive body. Um, uh, of, the, of the more than 30 dancers who made up the ballet's pre-literate, pre-Christian Slavic community, to this dance he added shaking and trembling, jerking and stamping, clenched fists and heads tilted with the hieratic strangeness of icons. His men walked heavily, their shoulders hunched; the women stepped clumsily on demi um, on high demi point. Nijinsky did not have a a gift for language and only limited powers of persuasion. The dancers rebelled at what they considered his unreasonable demands, at his insistence on mechanical imitation and perfection in every detail. Some refused to work with him altogether. Even Tamara Karsavina, his longtime partner, walked out during rehearsals of Je, when Nijinsky was choreograph- which Nijinsky was choreographing during roughly the same period as Sacra. at the rehearsals of Je, and here you see um, Val- one of Valentin Hugo's um, pastels of the uh, ballet. Um, I- anyway, during this, uh, one of the rehearsals of Je, T- Karsavina wrote in her memoir, Theater Street. He was at a loss to explain what he wanted of me, and it was far from easy to learn the part by a mechanical process of imitating the postures as demonstrated by him. As I had to keep my head screwed on one side, both hands curled in as one maimed from birth, it would have helped to know what it was for. Um, So, In contrast then to Fokin's emphasis on collaboration, Nijinsky reconceived the relationship of dancer and choreographer, and choreographer as one of dominance and subordination. Free of the bureaucratic constraints of a traditional theater, Nijinsky literally could do anything. Thanks to Diaghilev's unconditional support of his choreographic ambitions, Nijinsky demanded and received unlimited rehearsals. I mean, This is extraordinary when you consider how expensive it is to mount ballets absolute obedience of the dancers and the surrender of their creativity. Such control was not an aberration within the universe of dance modernism, however. In fact, with the transformation of the ballet master into a choreographic star, success or failure for the enterprise as a whole um, very largely depended on what the choreographer had to say and how he or, um, or she chose to say it with so much riding on outcomes. The emphasis lay on product rather than process. The end justified the means, even if this transformed the studio into a site of humiliation, um, coercion, and violence. Like Nijinsky, but to a far greater, but to a far greater degree, Martha Graham, Antony Tudor, and Jerome Robbins, um, they treated the dancer as a mute, unquestioning instrument of the choreographer's imagination. I suppose in writing this, I was very much thinking of some of the work, I, um, some of the research, and much of what was turned up um, during the period when I was working on the Jerome Robbins exhibition, uh, where it's very, this kind of relationship was just de rigueur in his, um, in his rehearsal process. Um, and now I would like to turn to my next choreographer, Leonid Massine. Um, with the outbreak of World War I in 1914, Diaghilev found himself at, at a creative a turning point. Nijinsky was gone, fired by Diaghilev after his marriage, while Fou- Fokin, whom Diaghilev had persuaded to return for the 1914 um, season, was back in Petrograd. Although Nijinsky would return to dance with the Ballet Russe in 1916 and 1917, Diaghilev had moved on. At his side now was Leonid Massine, handsome, young, recently plucked from the Bolshoi Ballet, and the object of Diaghilev's passionate mentorship. In the early months of the war, they toured Italy together, visiting churches, monasteries, and museums, Diaghilev with his faithful Baedeker, uh, Massine soaking up hundreds of years of Italian art, until standing before Simone Martini's Annunciation at the Uffizi Gallery, he announced to Diaghilev that yes, He thought he could compose a ballet, not only one, but a hundred. He actually did about a hundred and twenty. Thus began Massine's um, apprenticeship as a choreographer. From the start, the visual arts ignited his imagination and gave form to its inventions. Liturgy, uh, his first ballet, although it was never produced, was in the style of Byzantine mosaics and Italian primitives. Las Meninas uh, grew out of the, his discovery of Velázquez at the Prado in Madrid, while the good humored ladies found its stylized manners in the paintings of Watteau and, and Pietro Longhi. Living artists inspired him as well. Uh, here is a portrait of Massine called uh, Massine Taking a Bow. It's by Picasso. It's difficult to convey the excitement of working with Massine and Cocteau. Uh, Sorry, uh, working with Picasso and Cocteau, Massine wrote in his collaboration with them I- about his collaboration with them in Parade. At every meeting, our exchange of ideas would set sparks flying around the room. Every innovation—the sound effects, the cubi- cubist costumes, the megaphones—would set off a fresh train of thought of ideas for the choreography, which I would then demonstrate for Diaghilev. One can imagine how thrilled Diaghilev must have been about all of this as well. Massine worked closely with André Derain, who designed La Boutique Fantasque, and even more closely with Matisse, who designed Le Champ du Rossignol in 1920, um, working with them to create a, a fusion of costumes, decor, and choreography. In his memoirs, um, Massine recalled a moment at the end of Rossignol when the dying emperor, quote, stood up and loosened his black mantle, which flowed down and covered about 50 square feet of the stage with its magnificent vermilion lining. Matisse had designed it as an integral part of the spectacle. In this formalized oriental fantasy, I tried to imagine the tiny restrained movements which I had seen on Chinese paintings um, on silk and on lacquered screens. in other words, for Ma- Matisse, the most, I mean, sorry, for Massine. I keep getting these two. Even. They shouldn't be so similar. Uh, for Massine, the most important collaboration, as he told readers of the British magazine drama in 1919, is that of the choreographer and of the designer of the scenery and costumes, end quote. Even more important than Picasso, Matisse and Durand in Massine's early de- very early development as a choreographer, however, was the Russian avant-garde artist who guided his initial initial compositional efforts, um, um, Mikhail Laryanov. In 1915, with his life companion, the uh, painter Natalia Goncharova, seen here in a self-portrait, he settled in Ushi, a suburb of Lausanne in neutral Switzerland, where Diaghilev was rebuilding his company, uh, which had dispersed um, at the start of the war. Both artists were aligned with the Russian Cubo Futurists. Um, and, um, a, and they had experimented with abstraction and developed a style of neo primitivism, um, in, uh, inspired in part by the popular Russian prints known as Lubki. Both, moreover, had taken an active part in avant garde performance events, with Laryanov, in particular, acquiring, acquiring a reputation for conceptual inventiveness. In Ushi, however, Larianov abandoned his most radical ideals—I mean, ideas. Instead, at Diaghilev's um, behest, he worked with Massine, supervising—I oh, didn't realize I put that on. Okay, uh, supervising um, his earliest compositional efforts and beginning the process that ended with the assimilation of Cubo-Futurist strategies into Massine's ballet practice. Um, for *Midnight Sun*, which you see the set design here for. Um, Massine's first realized ballet, Larionov came up with the Russian folk legends that provided the ballet's narrative uh, scaffolding, designed the highly stylized um, scenery and costumes, and recast the treatment of folklore along modernist lines. Larionov and I seemed to inspire each other as we discussed and tried out each scene, wrote Massine in my life. Um, He felt strongly um, that the ballet must be done in authentic peasant style. Um, Massine drew on childhood memories of peasant round dances, but instead of transposing them directly or idealizing them as Fokin had done with folk material in Petrushka, with Larionov's help, he embellished them with what he called suitably primitive earthy gestures. Um, in their painting, explained art, explains art historian Anthony Parton, Larionov and Goncharova Goncharova sought to assimilate the pictorial language of Russian visual culture and express it afresh. This was evident in Goncharova's icon-inspired sketches for liturgy, and even more so in Larionov's um, futurist-influenced designs for Midnight's uh, Sun and also Conte Russe, uh, sometimes called Russian fairy tales in England. Um, another work they drew on Russian folk material. Using arcs and triangles and circles, they created geometric landscapes and interiors that approached partial abstraction. Their colors, and you can see this here, were vivid, bold, and pure, uh, and dazzling to um, audiences. They concealed the face with elaborate makeup, and masked the body, as you can, as it's suggested here, with heavy padded costumes, stiffened with cardboard that reconstructed the body, objectifying it as a spectacular piece of moving scenery, but also making it difficult for the dancers wearing them to move. Far cry from leotards and tights. Um, During the war years, um, Diaghilev's inner circle resembled nothing so much as a traveling laboratory. Um, a workshop of experiment. As in Ushi, painters, composers, and dancers lived in an atmosphere of intimacy. In 1917, uh, with plans underway for a Spanish-themed ballet that eventually became *La Tricorn, and this is one of Picasso's designs for it, Diaghilev, Messine and the, compo- the composer Manuel de Falla um, who was writing the music, and a flamenco dancer named Felix Fernandez, whom they had discovered in Madrid, and with whom Massine was studying, made a grand tour of Spain, traveling in slow stages across Castile, Aragon, Andalusia, observing the regional dances that Massine and Faria later absorbed into the ballet's modernist idiom. Italy, too, claimed Diaghilev's attention. Uh, he spent long periods in Rome where Picasso, Cocteau, and Satie did much of the creative work on Parade. With Massine in tow, Diaghilev attended futurist soirees, made plans for ballets that remained unproduced, even as Massine began to uh, collect the work of futurist um, painters that had begun to influence his choreography. Diaghilev also discovered a new body of music in Italy. Rather than commissioning new works from contemporary Italian painters and composers, he turned to little-known music of their 18th or early 19th-century predecessors—Scarlatti, Rossini, Perugolese, Timorosa. Diaghilev discovered most of this music on his own, uh, winnowing the fi- final selections himself. For, in, uh, for good-humored ladies, for instance, Messine Ma- remembers they listened to about 500, that's the number Messine gives, of Scarlatti's sonatas. It could be a slight exaggeration, but clearly they listened to a lot. Um, choosing the 20, that Diaghilev then asked the composer, Vincenzo Tommasini, to um, orchestrate. For Messine, the process of collaboration was above all a relationship among the confraternity of artists assembled by Diaghilev. With the exception of Goncharova, this confraternity was exclusively male. It also excluded dancers. To some extent, this explains Massine's unusual receptivity to ideas generated by painters and composers, as well as his um, equally unusual interest in the dance techniques of 18th century ballet masters, which enabled him to envisage, as he put it, a completely new movement in the design and creation of ballet. He first put these techniques into practice in the Good Humored Ladies, where he learned, as he wrote, the full value, no, sorry, the value of giving full significance to even the most minute gesture. Um, and, And discovered also that the body embraced more or less, as he called it, independent structural systems that had to be coordinated according to the choreographic harmony. Um, this, in turn, led him to invent broken angular movements for the upper part of the body, while the lower limbs continued to move in the usual harmonic, harmonic um, academic style. This caricature, which of Massine in La Boutique Fantasque, as you see that he was doing the can dance, gives you some sense of this. The relationship to 18th century um, practice is far from evident, and in time Massine would reject this approach. Nevertheless, the effort to root his compositional process in an alternative classical tradition, one that sidestepped the immediate Russian past and predated the 19th century codification of ballet technique, suggests to what extent his approach to classicism differed both from his Ballet ruse predecessors and successors. Alone among Diaghilev's choreography, he had grown up unburdened by Petitpa's legacy. In other words, unlike Diaghilev's Mariinsky-bred choreographers, Massine had no past to extirpate or masterpieces to forget. He was a choreographic tabula rasa in search of per- first principles. Um, Diaghilev, with Massine as his instru- instrument, may have remade the Ballet Russe aesthetic during the war years. But he did so by transforming, rather than rejecting, the principles upon which the company was founded. From the first, it had rested upon the idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, or total artwork, the Wagnerian notion that all parts of a work, its words, music, and visual setting, must fuse in the creation of a new synthesis, one seemingly forged by a single artistic hand, and provoking a heightened emotional response on the part of the audience. Um, in his letter to the Times, Fokin reiterated the principle, as would Diaghilev in his conver- many conversations with Massine. At the same time, he believed that the forms of art, as opposed to the, its underlying principles, would change. In his article in Drama, Massine analyzed the differences between himself as a choreographer and his two Ballet Russe predecessors. Fokin, he wrote, gave us pure movement. Nijinsky, by contrast, viewed choreography as a plastic art, ignoring um, movement and often and often arresting it, which is a very interesting idea. Massine, for his part, sought what he described as a th- synthesis of movement of form, of choreography and plastic art, in which the two essentials would be balanced, but with a certain inclination toward the plastic element. Like Fouquin before him, Massine underscored the importance of collaboration, arguing that the most successful ballets were those which were the fruits of the joint creation of choreographer, designer, and composer. Although Massine of the late 1960s regarded classicism of the, as the university of the modern choreographer, Massine in the late 1910s felt the need for what he called a, quote, new school of dancing. This school, he wrote, would have nothing in common with the classical school. Nothing in common, by the way, is a quote. Um, But would unite in itself and express all the possibilities of the human body. In a 1919 interview published in The Observer, he elaborated on this idea, describing the body as having a, quote, orchestra of 30 different instruments, each of which is disciplined, and each of which is capable of being brought into play. Despite, um, end quote, despite the emphasis on corporeal pluralism, Massine has nothing to say about the dancer. Intellectually, in a sense, the dancer, dancers were irrelevant to his uh, creative process, even if physically they embodied his creative vision. Yet from his earliest ballets, he had a sense of them as artists. He understood their uh, strengths and created roles that capitalized on their personalities. Under his his aegis, a new generation of principals came to the fore, including Lydia Lopakova, a natural comedian, and Lydia Sokolova, who instinctively understood the complexities of his choreography. Writing about his revision of Le Sacre du Printemps, Sokolova wrote, this was a typical Massine production, clear-cut and methodical, with each group counting like mad against the others, but each holding its own. In Massine's choreography, Nothing was ever left to chance. Um, now, um, I, I do think that, um, ma- that Massine, in his masterful uh, coupling of Cubo future uh, st- strategies, did leave out one thing, and that I think was heart. Um, this would be supplied by Bronislava Nijinska in Les Noces, probably the greatest ballet of the 1920s. Like her brother, she viewed dance as the uh, vehicle of personal expression and the body as its objective correlative, to use a, an Eliot phrase, um, the instrument of her brother's experiments. Um, she made her first dancers only after World War II, uh, I had separated them. However, her earliest dances were inspired not by Nijinsky, by, uh, but by Fokin. Um, In 1916, the couple moved to um, Kiev, that's um, Kaczetowski, the guy who kept her from dancing in the Rite of Spring, with their daughter. They moved to Kiev, where he was appointed ballet master at the State Opera Theater. Within a year, Nijinska was teaching at the State Conservatory of Music, the Central State Ballet Studio, the Yiddish Cultural Center Drama Studio, and the Ukrainian Drama School. Of course, we remember that in 1917, there was something called the Revolution. Um, by November, the Bolsheviks had come to power. Najinska, however, did not leave unlike so many former dancers of the former imperial theaters, but headed for Moscow in the, uh, in the hope of securing a teaching position at the Moscow Ballet School. Unsuccessful in this attempt, she then returned to Kiev, which was undergoing an artistic renaissance, despite daily bombardments and pitched battles between whites and reds over the fate of the city. In 1919, Nijinska opened her own studio. The Ukrainian scholar Miroslava um, Mudrak calls this a ballet studio. But Nijinska herself, after toying with names such as Nijinska's Academy of Dance, Academy of Art and Dance, and Theatrical Conservatory of Dance, finally settled on School of Movement. Emphasizing the idea stated in her manifesto of the period, that movement is the principal element of dancing. In a draft announcement of the new school, she explained that while classes would be conducted on the basis of the technique of the Russian Imperial School, they would also teach, quote, everything new that has been discovered in the recent period of development of the Russian ballet, including the latest discoveries and achievements in the area of movement, movement with a capital M. Her goal was to create a new type of ballet artist, Hence, she did not accept young children, nor did she offer classes in point, or proscribe what Mudrat calls the synthetic principles of the Dalcro system. Like Massine at roughly the same moment, Nijinska welcomed the expansion of forms produced by new discoveries. At the same time, she questioned, as did all of Diaghilev's choreographers, the need to create a new scale of movement, as had Duncan and Dalcro's, um, however brilliant and legitimate their ideas, um, smarting from these from quote those defenders of classicism who defend today accuse us of a, of destroying the classical school, she argued that incorporating innovations would only enrich it. quote "The old classical school cannot freeze in its forms." In retrospect, her school was both an incubator of experiment, and a nursery for neoclassicism. It was also um, a a laboratory where she worked out the ideas for her first modernist choreography. The solos and group dances that she produced in 1919 and 1920 were plotless, with students from her school filling the ensembles and costumes, when there was money for more than tunics, designed by Vadim Meller in the constructivist idiom of his teacher, Alexandra M. Exter. Nijinska taught in part because she had to. By 1919, she had given birth to a second child, separated from her husband, and become the sole support of her family. It was a time of terrible shortages, and she needed the food and fuel that students often bartered for classes. But even when she rejoined the Ballet Russe in 1921, she insisted on teaching once she began choreographing original works for the company. Indeed, the daily class was her workshop, she designed her classes to build strength, writes Nancy um, Van Norman Baer, especially in the lower body and to enhance the expression of the torso and arms, inventing unusual variations for the upper body in the bar movements. Um, after years of daily classes with Enrico Cecchetti, followed by a stint with Carlotta Brianza, Petty first Aurora in Sleeping Beauty, and the Carabas and Diaghilev Sleeping Princess, some dancers balked at her teaching her style of movement was even more pronounced and idiosyncratic than Massine's, recalled Lydia Sokolova. Um, um, and uh, she writes, um, and she was not an easy person to work for in class or at rehearsal because of her extreme mannerisms. Her system of training seemed to depend more on improvisation than on traditional methods of technique, um, and, um, so that it struck one as lacking in foundation. I'm not entirely sure I accept that, but in any event, that was quite different. Unlike Massine, um, at home with Diaghilev's inner circle of artists, Nijinska was always an outsider. In part, this was because she was a woman, tolerated because of her talent and her relationship to Nijinsky. But it was also because her illne- his illness had scarred her, setting her apart. When she returned to the Ballet Russe in 1921, having just seen her brother, in a, a sanatorium in Vienna, what thoughts must have run, run through the minds of the dancers? Of the three Nijinsky siblings, she alone had escaped the family disease. Had it passed her over, or was it only a matter of time bev- before it would strike her down too? As for Nijinska, she had lost not only a brother, but also not only a brother, but also a friend. She had been his helpmate and even his muse, the witness of his acts of creation. Now she had to car- um, carry on alone. A- arriving in London, she was shocked to discover that Diaghilev was mounting the Sleeping Princess, the very symbol of the old ballet. He asked to, resta- to restage several entrances and revise a number of dancers, uh, dances, including the fairy variations and the mime. She started work, she wrote in the 1930s, full of protest against myself. I had just come back from Russia in revolution, and after many a production of my own over there, the revival of The Sleeping Princess seemed to me an absurdity, a dropping into the past, mere non-entity. Naturally, what I wanted was a return to the former tendency of Diaghilev's ballets, uh, so as to realize new life, new paths, and a new technique in ballet composition. In later years, Nijinska warmed to Petipa's work. Still, as she explained toward the end of her life, Petipa's concern for the school of classic dance left a greater impression on my creative work than his ballets and became the foundation of my pedagogical and choreographic activities. Within the Ballet Russe, Nanette de Valois was one of the few dancers to appreciate the new academic classicism that Nijinska brought to the classroom and to sense the great tradition of a famous state school, that imbued her choreography. De Valois, who founded the uh, the company that grew into the Royal Ballet in England, acknowledged Nijinska's, quote, tuition as the most vital experience, influence, and help in her own career. Although artistic collaboration did not come naturally to Nijinska, Les Nos, oh, sorry, that's Les Biches, that was um, another one of uh, Nijinska's ballets from the period, and that's the set design by Marie, uh, Marie Laurencin. Yes. Uh, and this is an early version of Gontarova's set for Les um, it, The ba- uh, Les Nos stands as a brilliant synthesis of dance, music, um, um, and design. Stravinsky's score was ten years in the making and had morphed with his developing neoclassicism into a composition as spare as it was powerful. Goncharova reconceived the designs not once, but twice. Let's go back to that. Look at that. (laughs) This is the second set of designs. Um, Not once, but twice. Ultimately arriving at a third equally stark um, solution. According to Serge Grigoriev, the Ballet Russe Regisseur, Diaghilev wished to have the dancers' movements to be highly stylized. Now, why is it moving on? I don't know why he keeps doing that. But anyway, these are the high, uh, Diaghilev wanted the women dancing on points. This is suspect. And in in an article on the creation of the ballet written in uh, the 1960s, Nijinska makes a point of claiming the idea as her own conceived, as she told Diaghilev, to express the rhythm of braiding. Nijinska also claimed that it was she, not Goncharova, who rejected the latter's Russo boyar ske- sketches, like the one you just saw, and insisted upon scenery of the utmost simplicity and uniform costuming? Um, this is a photo of the bride played by Felia Dubrovska, the original bride. As you see, sta- she's standing in point shoes, dark point shoes, and she's in a kind of very stylized Russian um, peasant dress, and, an everyday kind of peasant dress. And um, all the women dancers were danced identically, like this. Um, However, in Goncharova's account of the ballet's metamorphosis, she claims that it was she, two weeks before the premiere, and with no prior discussion with the choreographer, who came up with the idea, with both ideas. Yet, given Nijinska's efforts in the early 1920s to reconcile her own interest in abstraction, with Diaghilev's unwillingness to discard the idea of a literary libretto, um, there seems no reason to doubt that her vision dominated the ballet. Here, as in other works, she renounced what she called the literary libretto, creating a new species of uh, of composition, or what she um, also called a choreographic um, concerto. Now, abstraction did not preclude emotion. On the contrary, as in literature or painting of of the period, pure form allowed for the unsentimental expression of subjectivity. Um, for all its stringency, Les bled with emotion, especially in the treatment of the bride. The ballet's theme struck, struck a personal note in Nijinska, evident in a reminiscence written decades after the ballet's premiere. This is Nijinska now, in Dance Magazine. I saw a dramatic quality in the fate of the bride and groom, since there is no question of, quote, mutuality of feelings, and she italicized that. The young girl knows nothing about her future family, nor what lies in store for her. The soul uh, of the innocent is in disarray. She is bidding goodbye to her carefree youth and to her loving mother. For his part, the young groom cannot imagine what life will bring close to this young girl. How can such souls rejoice during their wedding ceremonies? Um, Nijinska was the first in a line of women Choreographers in ballet, um, Ninette de Valois, Marie Rambert, Agnes de Mille, Andre Howard, um, Karina Ari, touched by the liberating force of modern dance. Even if they remained loyal to classical technique, they inflected their ballets with a personal sensibility, absent from the works of dance making predecessors such as Katie Lanner, Madame Mariquita, Mademoiselle Stichel. And the uh, Stichel, sorry, and the unnamed, uncredited 19th-century women who contributed to the choreography to so many ballets, because modernism privileged the creative individual, it fostered the appearance of alternative voices and contexts for their expression, including flexible organizations, shorter expressive forms, and an aesthetic of change and risk-taking although not explicitly aimed at women, they created a, a space for female voices to be heard, for expressions of, se- of female subjectivity to take form in male as well as female bodies. Because of the centrality of the Ballet work, or ballet Russe to art making and art's opinion of its era, Les Nos represented more than a collective masterpiece. Um, for the first time, it privileged the female voice in the most elite quarters of ballet, giving it free reign and expressive freedom, allowing it, moreover, to tell a woman's story, to grieve at the unjust, gendered fate of a girl torn from her mother's um, arms to marry. Uh, Now we turn to something quite different. Late in 1924, furious that Diaghilev was secretly trying out her former student, Serge Lee as a choreographer, Nijinska left the Ballet Russe. Within a matter of weeks, a newcomer from Petrograd, the 20-year-old George Balanchine, had become Diaghilev's in-house choreographer. Within months, he had made dances for nine operas, including L'Enfant de les Sortilèges, Maurice Ravel's new lyric fantasy to a libretto by Colette, and was working on a new version of Stravinsky's um, Song of the Nightingale. Um, Balanchine remained with the Ballet Russes until 1929 when Diaghilev died and the company disbanded. These were the years of Balanchine's apprenticeship when he honed his craft and refined his taste. Choreographed nearly a dozen ballets, all but two of which, Apollo and Prodigal Son, he allowed to die and transformed himself from an up-and-coming Soviet artist to a citizen of the Russian arts polity in emigration. He also met a number of future collaborators, in later years, Balanchine tended to minimize the collaborative nature of his work and certainly by the early 1950s, he had eliminated scenery and detailed narratives for most of his ballets. The music is always first, he told an interviewer in 1961. I cannot move. I don't even want to move until, until I hear the um, music first. His mature work exemplifies what Stephanie Jordan has called music-based modernism. During his years with the Ballet Russe, however, Nijin, uh, Balanchine worked far more collaboratively than has generally been acknowledged. He formed a close relationship with Boris Kochno, Diaghilev's aide-de-camp, and the librettist for most of his, company of his company's works during the mid and late 1920s. Um, there, there, um, like Balanchine, Kochno was in his 20s. Um, he was also a Russian emigre and thus shared with the choreographer a language and a lost homeland. Their relationship extended beyond the uh, Ballet Russe, with Cochneau writing the book for several Balanchine works before the choreographer's departure for New York. Cochneau also uh, played a key role in Le Ballet 1933, Balanchine's first independent uh, company in the West, teaming him with artists and composers who contributed ideas as well as music and designs. Um, to his um, repertory. Um, Apollon Musaget, later known as Apollo, was a milestone for Balanchine. Although he had worked with Stravinsky's music before, on Le Chant du Rossignol, um, this was his first collaboration with a composer who became his lifelong confidant. Although Stravinsky wrote the scenario himself and the music as a commission for the Library of Congress, it is not unimaginable, suggests musicologist Charles Joseph, that Balanchine, Diaghilev, and Lefar may have at least advised the composer in temporal matters since Stravinsky regularly played sketches for them as the work evolved. Certainly in their later collaborations, Joseph adds, Stravinsky often asked Balanchine precisely how much time was needed to accommodate his choreographic conceptions. Balanchine alludes to this process in an interview with Dara de Maroda, published in 1931 in the Dance Journal. Here he describes his ideal method of collaboration, but also represents its relationship to what he called the quote, idea, making clear that at this point in his career, he had yet to abandon what Nijinska called the literary libretto. At a very early sta- as a very early statement of Balanchine's choreographic method, the the interview is worth quoting at length. Quote, when I am about to produce a ballet, I approach the task in one of two ways. One, either I begin with the idea and then look for suitable music, or I hear a certain piece of music which inspires me with an idea. But it's so interesting, he keeps using that term idea. In the first case, I very much prefer to have the music specially written for me and to be in constant touch with the composer while he's writing it. I must be able to convey to him exactly what I require, so that the music accords with my action, and harmonizes with my music, my movements. In the second case, I familiarize myself with the music, and and try to fathom what the composer had in mind when writing it, or endeavor to conceive a theme which will harmonize with the mood of the music. End quote. Before beginning rehearsals, he then he writes he mapped out an outline of the ballet and the general scheme of the action although he never made notes or wrote anything down. It was all in his head. But it's very interesting that he does say that he's working along those lines because later on people would say, oh, he never made notes, he just walked in. It was Massine who had the long, you know, the books with all the everything written out in advance. Um, he discussed the scenery and costumes with the designer so they would accord with his ideas. But anticipating his later practice, as well as Merce Cunningham's, interesting to note, he never discussed the ballet with, with the dancers end quote. This is a quote now. When I start to rehearse, I do not even tell them the plot or anything about the ballet, but as the work progresses I may mention the name of a part to one and say you play the brother of so and so. My dancers do not know what they have to do and what characters they will be called upon to portray. Um, The choreography itself only began in the studio. Unlike Massine or Pettipa who worked out patterns and even step sequences in advance, Balanchine choreographed directly on the dancers. Recalling uh, Nijinsky, he treated, now we're talking about 1931, he treated the dancer as an instrument, quote, working out every movement, showing each dancer what he or she must do down to the slightest movement, and he expected everyone to, quote, copy him down to the smallest detail. If time was short, the soloists were left, quote, to perfect themselves. Otherwise, he worked individually with each dancer, quote, until he or she is perfect. He was completely against improvisation. Um, When dancers improvise, he said, they only perform movements with which they're familiar. And consequently, this will lack originality. Improvisation is only good for dance students, to give them an opportunity to use their brains as well as their limbs. Uh, This is all terribly interesting in light of so many later things that would be said about Balanchine, or that Balanchine himself would say about himself. Um, Perhaps most surprising is Balanchine's almost casual dismissal of technique. Quote, dancers should have technique simply to enable them to place their bodies and limbs in any required position. A great deal of commonplace dancing would be eliminated if only people stopped thinking of steps and concentrated on movement. Again, the use of this word movement. Speaking to Arnold um, Haskell in 1934, a, a few months after arriving in New York, Balanchine asserted that he did collaborate with his dancers in the sense of creating, and this is a quote, particular works for particular persons by drawing out what is in them, end quote. But he insisted that they were quite, and he the word, unconscious of it, and altered nothing deliberately. Again, quotes. He also insisted on the need for a choreographer to invent new works. Quote, if dancers only perform composition created two or three decades ago, they would make no technical um, to say nothing of aesthetic progress, uh, uh, wait, aesthetic advance. Um, this is from an, a dan- an article published in a magazine called Dance in 1937. The whole, and another quote, of the whole life and extension of the art of the classic dance depends upon choreographers. Um, so now I do want you to see this. Um, this is uh, a fascinating uh, set by Gabo and Pezner for um, Balanchine's work *Last Shot* from 1927. That was a Diaghilev work, and I think for those of you who may know some of Merce Cunningham's works, there, there's certainly a connection with the large glass, um, which Cage and Cunningham—I mean, this Cage and Cunningham certainly knew they, they, this period. As to um, when Balanchine th- then refers to works of his, like La Chate and Barabao, he says, they're quite impossible now, he says to Haskell. They were made for another time, i.e. 10 years before. Um, then, sounding a familiar note, he said, I do not believe in the permanence of anything in ballet save the purely classical. Classicism is enduring because it is impersonal. Although Balanchine harbored mixed feelings about Diaghilev, he subscribed to key articles of Diaghilev's faith that, quote, classicism is the university of the modern choreographers, but that ballet must change and renew itself. This business, that ballet must change and renew itself, was central to Diaghilev and uh, I believe also to Balanchine. Um, Like Diaghilev too, Balanchine was completely unsentimental about the past. More than anyone, he wrote to Serge Grigoriev after the impresario's death, quote, we should leave Diaghilev's name in peace and create other ballets with other names. This is in 1930, only a year after Diaghilev had died. Um, Balanchine later wrote that Diaghilev had great respect for artistic integrity and did not refer to um, work in progress. All the discussion took place in the planning stages so that every phrase, every phase represented a collaboration. Oh, am I uh, doing time problems? Five? Okay, that's close. Okay, um, it, this may well have been true, but it's equally the case that relatively few ballets of the 1920s achieved the unity of Les Nos. Many, in fact, did not even aspire to the fusionist ideal of Gesamtkunstwerk. The elements that went into their making were often arbitrary and incongruous, traveling across space and time in witty juxtaposition. And now, um, this is a photo of the first of Apollo in 1928, the first, the original production, the apotheosis. In the original production of Apollo Musagetes or Apollo, the music and choreography told um, a contemporary tale of Attic divinities. Yet the muses wore tunics. You see them on the lower left, um, Duncan-style tunics. Um, No, sorry, the muses wore tutus, and the attendants at Apollo's birth wore Duncan-style tunics, while horses and putti scampered across um, André Beauchamp's naive rendering of an 18th century painting. Although Diaghilev hailed the choreography as, quote, pure classicism, such as we have not seen since Peripa, the ballet as a whole revealed multiple narratives of classicism, not all of which sat easily with one another. In fact, the ballet's post diaghilev history can be viewed as an attempt to disentangle these different ideologies, eliminating those that challenged the music-dance division articulated by Balanchine and, and Stravinsky, while articulating a yearning for perfection in a luminous space outside um, history. Um, so my conclusion. Thus, by uh, 1929, when Diaghilev died and the Ballet Russe collapsed, it had established the preeminence of the choreographer as opposed to the composer or the librettist um, in the, the identity of a ballet. In so doing, it underscored the centrality of choreographic practice and the contribution of the individual choreographer, and for the first time, made subjectivity, a, desert, a desideratum in, in ballet. The Ballet Russe pioneered a host of practices that ballet as well as modern dance artists would continue to investigate for decades to come. Many of these practices centered on a collaboration, others on the relationship between choreographic expression and technique. The representation of emotion, the nature of narrative, the synergy between choreographer and dancers. Um, All these have been central issues of 20th century dance. The Ballet Russe emphasized process as much as product. It encouraged uh, experiment and assimilated the results into ballet practice. In this it reflected the nature of Diaghilev's own creativity, his extraordinary ability to seize upon an idea and develop it, giving it the contours of balletic flesh. Music, design, a subject, choreography, even as he transformed their contents. His absorption of futurist ideas during World War I, like his embrace of Cubism, was extraordinary for a man of his, background, of his generation and background. He was, he was a man who never set foot in the studio without a top hat or seemingly ever took a, tr- a turn on the dance floor. Yet he t- transformed the practice and process of choreography, not once, but with every changing of his artistic guard. Through the choreographers, he discovered, shaped, and helped to launch. He expanded the boundaries of balletic form, making and remaking it, as in a quest for the new that simultaneously rested on the old and cast a long shadow on 20th century dance. Thank you. Sorry.